Good morning, church. We are in a series of sermons called Back to the Bible, and this is uh, my favorite Bible verse in all the scriptures I get to share with you today, which makes this a good day. And I know some of you are saying, we've heard you talk about a lot of scriptures you like, Colin. Yes, but this would be the one above them all. It's in Hebrews chapter 11. If you have your Bibles, open there with me if you would. Um, Hebrews 11 is often known and referred to as the Hall of Faith passage. It talks about all these great characters of the faith from the Old Testament or the blue books here, the first part of the scriptures, uh, and, and talks about how these people were people of faith, and that's how God used them. And uh, it actually defines faith in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. And so I want to start there before we get to my favorite verses. Hebrews 11, verse 1 and 2. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. So each of these characters, what it's saying is that they're they're about to be brought up in the rest of this chapter. They trusted God. They trusted in what they could not see. They risked their lives. Some of them even gave up their lives because of this faith, because of this confidence in what they could not see. And and if you drop down uh, after a few of those stories are told, uh, something said in verse 13 I want to appeal to also. It reminds us of something we sometimes forget. Again, Hebrews 11, 13. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on the earth. So these people, all of them, they died before Jesus shows up. They didn't know anything about the, the, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. They lived in the early chapters of a story that God was going to continue to write. But we live in the final chapters of that story. I still haven't come to my favorite verses yet. We'll come back to those in just a bit. But before the big reveal, I want to introduce you to another uh, concept or idea about the Bible that's been very helpful to me. And the person who opened me up to this was a guy named N.T. Wright, who's been a really helpful scholar over the last 15 years in understanding Scripture and understanding it in its original context. And he invites us to imagine this scenario. So imagine this with me. We're part of a theater group. And we discover a lost script, a five-act play that was written by Shakespeare. We read through the script, and when we come to the end of it, what we discover is Shakespeare, for some reason, didn't finish the play he had started. The first four acts go real well. There's a few stories in the fifth act, but it's not concluded. Maybe it is that he passed before he wrote this, or we're not sure why, but there's no conclusion to the story. And so now, we let's say we really like the first four and a half acts, and we want to perform it, but to do so, we're going to have to improvise the fifth act to conclude the story that was started faithfully. Now, how would we go about preparing to improvise the last act of the play? Well, we would have to improvise, wouldn't we? We'd have to immerse ourselves in the first four and a half acts. We'd have to understand the characters. We'd have to understand the plot development. We'd have to understand the intent of the author who writes these first four acts. Analyze the story as a whole to discern where the trajectory of the story may be going. Where's the story seem to be going? What would be a proper conclusion for it? And having immersed ourselves in the story so far, we then step onto the stage and we pick up to conclude this story where Shakespeare left off, improving scene after scene, improvising until we get to the end. Now, don't be thrown off by that word improvise. 
Improvise doesn't mean in this situation that you can do whatever you want with the ending, right? Improvising means that you go back to the beginning of the story and you understand the plot development, you understand the characters, and you give it a proper conclusion in light of its beginning. That's what it means to faithfully improvise that final scene. And my suggestion, church, is this. That that is our very task as Christians who were living in 2018. And it will be our task until Jesus chooses to return a second time. We take the story that's been written and we bring it to its proper conclusion with the help of the Holy Spirit. N.T. Wright talks about the story being written in five acts. The first of those acts he describes is creation. Genesis 1 and 2 talk about a good world that's created. Genesis 3 through 11 then are chapter 2 or act 2 in the story. It's the story uh, of the fall, right? Brokenness comes into this world. It's a world that's in need of repair. Well, then from Genesis 12, the story of Abram on until uh, the end of these blue books, the uh, Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, we, uh, we, we see the story of Israel. And Israel kind of finding its way as a community that's called out to live differently than the nations around them. It ultimately is given a blessing so they can extend that blessing to all nations on earth. But in Act 4 comes Jesus. Jesus steps onto the scene. And this biblical story finds its meaning in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, who not only shows us how to read and interpret the first uh, three acts, but also sets the trajectory for the fifth act that's to continue. And that fifth act is the work of the church. The age of the Holy Spirit begins at Pentecost after the Gospels and continues on from Acts through Revelation. And that story continues, doesn't it? But the New Testament doesn't tell the whole story. Christian history has continued on past the end of uh, Revelation. So where are we today? Well, I would suggest we're living in Act 5. We're living with part of the script that's been written, and the Holy Spirit continues to work with us to continue to improvise, to continue with the help of the Holy Spirit to carry it to its intended conclusion. And that brings me back to Hebrews chapter 11. This is why this is my favorite verse. Verse 39 and following. These were all commended for their faith. Like all these people that have been mentioned in this story, over 15 characters and more beyond that that he doesn't go into detail with, all of these who live by faith, they were commended for their faith. And yet, that's what the next word says, which is a profound statement. Yet none of them received what had been promised. In other words, these people didn't get to live to see Act 4. They didn't get to live in the incredible age we do today, which is Act 5, the age of the Spirit. They don't know about the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. But listen to what it says the rest of verse 40. This is remarkable. Since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. You realize the moment we're living in? In other words, these people didn't get to see Act 4, Act 5. We live in the era after the Bible was completed. And what I was told growing up was what that means is you get baptized and then you sit on your hands and wait for Jesus to return. Maybe tell a few people along the way. That's not how this story is intended to be completed. We have a part in this. We're in the game. We're in Act 5. God planned something better for those first Christians that Hebrews written to, and I would suggest for us as well. All of those heroes of the faith mentioned in Hebrews 11, in the verses that follow, if you read them, it talks about the great cloud of witnesses. It's as if they're looking in on our world, looking in on our story, as we continue to perfect the story. Only together with us would they be made perfect. The, the, the word there for perfect or per- perfect is the word telos. And telos is a really important Greek term. 
In fact, uh, Aristotle and Plato use this word often. It's a central to, to nearly all philosophical theories of history, including Hegel and Marx. Your telos is your goal, or in the words of Taylor Swift, your end game. Your telos is the vision you have for where you want your business to go, for where you want your life to conclude. The telos of a marathon runner is the finish line. The telos of a sports team is the championship trophy. This is why this verse should be your favorite, because you are written into this story. Those heroes of faith are looking in on you to finish, to bring their story to its telos, because God continues to write and move. The heroes of faith in Acts 1 through 3 didn't have it as good as you have it. Because you have this ongoing gift of the Spirit. You have this gift of knowing Jesus. They didn't see what they hoped for. We know about how the story concludes in Jesus. The story is still being written. Ladies and gentlemen, we've got a role to play. We've got some improvising to do. And the only way that we can complete this story as its author intended is to know this set of books. That's what the series is about. Back to the Bible, because we've got to know the story of Acts 1 through 4 if we're going to be able to complete the story as the author intended it to be completed. Are you with me now? So what kind of story is this? What kind of author is behind this story? And this is where the sermon goes a little bit deeper. So I want you to follow me because there's a payoff if you'll stick with me. The only way that we can determine how to live in Act 5 is to get to know the author of this story. What is the character of this God who breathed into these books so many years ago and continues to do the same today? What I'm going to share with you right now, I want to actually expand in a future series. I'm going to preach a series of sermons sometime maybe next year on this idea that I want to share with you because it's changed the way I see some problematic passages in the Old Testament. It's helped me see ways that those can actually be hopeful instead of things that I'm embarrassed of or have to hide away in the corner in the closet. This book is actually good news. See, there are many in our culture who see God as barbaric, archaic, and behind the times. And and their impulse is, uh, since the Bible's that way, and, and this God is tribal, and this God is patriarchal, and this God is all these different things. And we just need to move past this book and we need to move on with history because that's what started religious wars. That's what started all of these problems. In in other words, they believe that the God we worship, these people, is behind us, somewhere in the past, trying to get his followers to return back to the way it used to be back in the day. That's how they portray God. And in many ways, I think this is one of the central questions of our time about everything that we encounter. Is the best future a return to a, a, an imagined pristine era when things were ideal? Or is our best future actually in the future? Here's what I believe. I believe God is always ahead of us, pulling us forward into his future rather than trying to drag us back to some imagined past. Remember what the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews 11. These were all committed for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Our God is not behind the times. Our God is way ahead of us. Our God is drawing all things to its intended telos, its intended conclusion. And we're in Act 5. Now, where did I get this idea that God is ahead of us? I got it from the Bible, which I've learned over the years is pretty unexpected for a lot of the people that we come in touch with in our world. Because for many people in the modern world, the Bible is one of the central reasons that religion seems so backward. God is ahead? How could you find that in the Bible? Yes, 
And to talk about that, I'll first need to take you to some pretty barbaric passages, some violent images in the Old Testament, because it's there that actually we see the hope that God might be something other than we expect. So turn with me, if you would, to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 21, for one of those passages that maybe we'd rather hide and act like, you know, that's our uncle that really isn't our uncle, right? You know that one? Deuteronomy 21, listen to these words uh, of instruction as the people of God are about to enter into the promised land. Deuteronomy 21, verse 10 and following. When you go to war against your enemies, and the Lord your God delivers them into your hands, and you take captives, if you notice among the captives a beautiful woman and are attracted to her, you may take her as your wife. Bring her into your home and have her shave her head, trim her nails, and put aside the clothes she was wearing when captured. And after she's lived in your house and mourned her father and and mother for a full month, then you may go to her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. If you are not pleased with her, let her go wherever she wishes. You must not sell her or treat her as a slave since you have dishonored her. Now, typically when Christians read this passage in the 21st century, we read it from the perspective of human rights that we have today. We would never suggest that this is the appropriate way for modern-day soldiers to treat beautiful Uh, foreign prisoners of war, even though this is in the Bible. From a modern point of view, uh, this text and others like it sound incredibly regressive and barbaric, sexist, and demeaning, which is why those who are antagonistic to the faith love to draw on passages like this, to point out and ask the question, why would you want to follow a God who commands something like that? Which is a good question. And to be honest, these are the kinds of questions that have led me to doubt throughout the early stages of my journey. Because when I look at these passages, I think, how does this line up with who Jesus is? How does this line up with the God that I want to follow? Is this a passage I would draw back to of some kind of practical suggestion for anybody in any situation? But what I'm sharing with you today is actually the very thing that has helped me develop greater faith in the God behind a passage like this. So let me share some background. This passage in Deuteronomy 21 is about the spoils of war which is a common occurrence in the ancient Near East where people were constantly going into battle. And when people go into battle, they're winners and they're definitely losers. And those losers have to pay either with their lives or by becoming the property of those who conquer them. It was customary that whenever someone won a battle, whatever they belong to them, that they're now dead, was given to the people who had won the, the victory. Animals, jewelry, tents, food, slaves, and even wives. Now, according to conventional wisdom of the day, you were free to do whatever you wanted with the spoils of war because those spoils were seen as your property. Property was seen as less than human, to be used or sold or redistributed or discarded or abused as you saw fit. That's how things were done in the ancient Near East. And it's into that world that this passage, this word from God comes, which lists rules for the spoils of war. And what's commanded? Well, first, you take the woman you found attractive into your home, which meant providing, you were providing for her. You would have provided roof and protection and food and clothes and whatever else she needed. Second, having her shave her head and trim her nails and change her clothes was to allow her to take on the marks of grief that are sure to happen in a scenario like this. She had suffered a horrific loss. And so she was to be given time to properly grieve. Grief is a human emotion, not something you would offer to property. But something in that culture, God was trying to progress them to see you give to people. Third, to make her your wife meant she was a fully functioning member of the household with all the responsibilities and rights and position that comes with it. And then fourth, 
When a man in that day was not pleased with a woman, he was free to send her away into a culture in which she had no rights, no standing, no form of protection against exploitation. As a result, women who'd been sent away had no option often except for prostitution. And this passage forbids sending a a, a rejected woman away without her rights and her honor and her dignity, which is a significant deviation from the cultural norms regarding spoils of war, because at the center of it was this simple affirmation, these women are not property, they're actually people. An obvious truth to us, but a revolutionary claim in the ancient Near East. You see how, what a, what, how a shock, this is a shocking and offensive cultural practice? And it sounds like that to us, doesn't it? But for those in that day, it was this groundbreaking advancement, taking things forward a little bit at a time. Now, we look back on this passage, and it's clearly a number of steps backward for us. But for the original audience at that time, it was a step forward. Now, do you think that culture had some way to go in terms of its treatment of women? Of course. Does our culture still have a long way to go in our treatment of women? Of course. Have you read the news recently? What we see in these passages is God meeting people and tribes and cultures right where they are, and drawing and inviting and pushing them forward into greater dignity and greater shalom and respect and rights and peace and dignity and equality. It's as if human history were progressing along a trajectory, a continuum, like like an arc. And God's moving this thing along to where it'll get to a greater place, and ultimately it'll look more like the kingdom of God. Now, one way to think about this is God's action in the Bible is that he's pulling things forward. And the way he does that is just a click at a time. And sometimes we wish it would be faster than just one click. In other words, God meets us at the click we're at and just continues to move things on this arc, this progression forward. God doesn't tend to move people from A to Z. He meets us at D and moves us to E. He meets us at M and moves us to L. All of us have seen this, right? If If we saw everything we knew now and at the original click we were at, we probably couldn't have bore it. But but click by click, God tries to draw us forward. If we're all the way back at A, God even meets us there and he takes us to B. This is true for individuals, families, tribes, nations, cultures, organizations, institutions, and churches. All of it taking place on this continuum. This God-fueled movement within human history. Now, this bit about clicks leads us to an obvious truth about the Bible, but one that we should point out anyway. And that is that the Bible's not a regressive set of books that we need to leave behind as we move forward. Instead, the Bible is a library of radically progressive books, books that were ahead of their time, books that tell stories about human interactions with the divine being who never, ever gives up and never stops calling us and pulling us forward to the desired end of the story, the telos that he has in mind to write. But here's the problem. Sometimes in the very moments that God's inviting us forward to the next click, our understanding of the Bible can be the very thing that holds us from moving forward with it. In fact, that's exactly what happened in the United States in the middle of the 19th century. On January 4, 1861, on a day of national fasting called to have people pray for the country's healing, Henry Ward Beecher, the North's most renowned preacher, addressed his Plymouth Congregational Church in Brooklyn, New York. In Beecher's view, 
the evil for which the United States as a nation most desperately needed to repent, the most alarming and most fertile cause of national sin was slavery. And in his mind, the Bible could not speak with more clarity about this great evil. In his sermon, this is one of his quotes, where the Bible has been in the household and read without hindrance by parents and children together, there you have had an indomitable yeomanry, a state that would not have a tyrant on the throne, a government that would not have a slave or serf in the field. But there were others who read Scripture that saw it differently. To them, the Bible spoke differently, and, and, and they rose to preach in that fateful moment. Six weeks earlier, a, a day of fasting was called by the state of South Carolina, and the South's most respected minister, James Henley Thornwell, stood up in his Presbyterian church in Columbia to address the very same theme of our national sin that Beecher would address in his congregational church in Brooklyn. To Thornwell, slavery was the good and merciful way of organizing labor which providence has given us. And Thornwell was so confident of his assertion that he didn't go back to the Bible to defend it. He simply asserted these words in his sermon, that the relation betwixt the slave and his master is not inconsistent with the word of God we have long since settled. We cherish the institution not from avarice, but from principle. Now, where in the world would a preacher like that get an idea about slavery being an acceptable practice? Well, the truth is he found it in the Bible. When this library of books was written, slavery was a given in that culture. Scattered throughout the Bible are stories about slaves, instructions about how slaves are to obey their masters and how masters are to obey their slaves. The early church spread through a culture that just assumed this was the way things would always be. And so in the New Testament, we don't, we don't see the early Christians challenging the institution of slavery in any kind of direct way. And if you were to line up and create a list of passages, those that supported slavery and those that supported abolition, I'm sorry to tell you that the the side supporting slavery would win. In fact, there's not a passage in this entire bookshelf that advocates for abolition. But what you do see in Scripture is a trajectory. What you see is a progression. You see an arc. And as actors in Act 5, it's our job to look for those trajectories and to continue them to the telos of the story. So if you look in, for instance, Exodus 21, you're going to find God beating Israel at point A and trying to take them to point B. So open with me, if you would, to Exodus chapter 21. Genesis won't be the right text here. Let's see. Let's go back to the shelf. Exodus 21, verses 20 and 21. Anyone who beats their male or female slave with a rod must be punished if the slave dies as a direct result. But they are not to be punished if the slave recovers a day or two since the slave is their property. Again, from a modern perspective, this seems so barbaric, doesn't it? It's horrible. But from an ancient perspective, this was actually a step forward at the Because in many ancient cultures, a master could do to their slave whatever they wanted to do. But in Israelite culture, there's this movement, there's this arc, there's this progression that sees a slave's life as inherently valuable. And this forward movement continues through the New Testament. Paul is often seen as someone who's behind the times, but I want you to see what he's doing to continue this arc in his writings. While he never called for the abolition of slavery, 
Encouraging slaves to gain their freedom was something that he advocated for in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 21. And he also counseled the masters to treat their slaves as Christ treats them in Ephesians 6, verse 9. And most significantly, he declares that in Christ there is no slave or free for those who've been baptized into his name. No longer class or superiority. That's Galatians 3, verse 28. You can see the trajectory that's here. And yet, in the 19th century, the church had the choice of how they would improvise in Act 5 on the question of slavery. And some quoted the Bible and believed abolition was wrong. And some wanted to move beyond Paul's words, but they played it safe. Because they couldn't find a book, chapter, and verse to follow along with their conscience. John Henry Hopkins was one of those good people who played it safe. These are his words from the 19th century. If it were a matter to be determined by personal sympathies, tastes, or feelings, I should be as ready as any man to condemn the institution of slavery for all prejudices of education, habit, and social position stand entirely imposed to it. But as a Christian, I'm compelled to submit my weak and erring intellect to the authority of the Almighty, for then only can I be safe in my conclusion. And history has proven that that safety was just cowardice. He was on the wrong side of history because he failed to see that God was calling him to do what Hebrews 11 had been calling us all to do all along. To continue this trajectory that God had set out for us. See, we live in Act 5. We are characters in a play and the heroes of faith are rooting us to complete their story. Only together with us, as God's writing this story, can it come to its proper telos. Can it come to its proper conclusion? And if I were a betting man this morning, I would wager that no one in this room would opt for the reinstituting of the practice of slavery. And yet none of us have a book, chapter, or verse we can point to to prove why we believe that. That was the deal growing up, right? Where's your support in Scripture? Where's your book, chapter, and verse? I don't have a verse to support the abolition of slavery. But my contention is that this ancient library of books that God inspired and continues to breathe life into is dead set against the practice of any person owning another person. And I can confidently say that because I see that trajectory, I see the hand of God continuing to move us ahead, a click at a time. If Israel had remembered their story, it would have been obvious where this trajectory was headed on the topic of slavery. In fact, there's an entire book of the Bible, if you pay close attention, that talks all about this, right? We may not have a book, chapter, or verse, but in reality, we have an entire book that tells us that God is for the freedom of people who are in bondage. God is the God who liberates slaves from their slavery. God is the God who steps up and hears the cry of the oppressed and always opts to choose to be on their side. Over and over again, God commands Israel not to mistreat or oppress the foreigner. And why is that? He always tells them, because you were once slaves in Egypt. This is your story, and you know that I'm the God of liberation. Why, when you enter into the promised land, would you ever pick up the same practice that you were put into? But generations later, it's obvious that Israel forgets their story. It's a remarkable passage. It's in 1 Kings chapter 9. Open there, if you would, with me. It's one verse, and this verse... It's wrecked me for the last few years to think this is the reality I was never taught growing up. 1 Kings 9, verse 15. Here's the account of the forced labor 
King Solomon conscripted to build the Lord's temple, his own palace, the terraces, the walls of Jerusalem, and Hazor, Megiddo, and Gezer. Did you catch it? Israel forgets their story when they enter into the promised land. This group of slaves is freed by a God who believes in liberation of all people. When Solomon sets up to build his palace, and let me remind you, the temple of the Lord, he builds it on the backs of slaves. In just a few generations, this group of oppressed people becomes the oppressor over others to build their house of worship. Church, we're in Act 5. And if we're going to improvise well in the 21st century, we have to know our story well. That's what this whole series is about. We call it going back to the Bible because we never know what we find when we go back there. And we're surprised by these things we've forgotten. And we're reminded of the story that still is in need of a telos, of a conclusion, that God is still writing in human history. And it's the job of the church to step up in these moments and not just point to scriptures that hold us back from the kingdom of God that God is putting on the earth. What do we pray? What did Jesus teach us to pray? He taught us to pray, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it already is in heaven, as it already is in the future, as it will one day be. That's how the church is supposed to live out our task on planet earth. So remember all of those heroes from Hebrews 11. They're depending on us to finish their story. If you keep reading into chapter 12, you realize that we're surrounded by that great cloud of witnesses. All of those heroes of faith are looking in on us, calling for us to do what? To finish the race that's been started. To bring it to its intended conclusion. So church, how are we going to continue to write this story along with God and his spirit? Only time will tell. Our God and our Father, we thank you for these breadcrumbs you've given to us along the way, along this path that you're taking us down, God. And I'm grateful for those in the midst of centuries after that we're willing to not just look at book, chapter, and verse and line up passages beside one another, but we're willing to see that you're the God of liberation. You're the God who hears the cry of the oppressed, and you're the God who steps beside those who step on the side of the future history that you're to bring. And one day in the new heavens and the new earth, all things will be made well. Some of us have been taught that we just kind of wait on that to happen, that we expect Jesus to, to come one day and that'll fix everything. We can't wait for that day. But God, we don't step out of our task as actors in Act 5. I know sometimes we ask you, why does injustice occur? And your response back is likely, why are you letting it occur? And so God, we, we want to be a people who continue this arc, this trajectory, and the things that you continue to call us forward on, to be faithful to the story, to complete it to the intended telos, which is the kingdom of God on earth as it already is in heaven. God, may we live in tune with that kingdom. May we not stand in the way of your justice and your faithfulness and your mercy and your goodness and the fruit of the Spirit being brought to all people throughout the earth. We pray this prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen.